Hi, this is Pastor Brittany Isaac from Urban Village Church, Chicago. We are a church that is bold, inclusive, and relevant. I know that many of you out there are hungry for a gospel message of healing and wholeness, a message that leads to a life transformed by Christ. I hope that this podcast does just that. And if it does, would you please consider making a financial gift that will support this gospel-inclusive ministry? You can do that by going to urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks so much and have a blessed day. Once again, it is Philippians 1, verses 18 through 26. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way whether out of false motives, in motives or truth, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living in Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desires is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain to continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting and Christ Jesus when I come to you again. So my name's Alicia Crosby. I am the co-founder and co-director of Center for Inclusivity. I'm a recent graduate of Loyola University Chicago. Thank you, God. <laughs> and this morning, I'll be your preacher. <laughs> so I'm going to start off by praying. That way I get set. That way we get set and we can do this. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for being with family. Thank you for your word. Thank you for justice and resistance and how we're going to navigate this through our time together today. God, I ask that you give me words. Help me be in step with your spirit and just let the words that everyone here needs be what's offered. In Jesus' name I pray. So last time I was here, we talked about scandal. We talked about the scandal of the love of God. This was, what, Palm Sunday. Um, and directly after service, Brittany asked me to come back because she's told me, hey, we're going to do this sermon series on the church without walls. I'm like, yes. So I know some of y'all, but I don't know most of you. It's because UVC is the church that I come to when I show up at a church. Um, so I'm not at all a regular attendee. And it's because in part of how much I believe in the church outside of the wall. So there's church congregation, which we are in right now in community together. And then there's like the great beyond, right? There's the church in the wild. And that's what I feel called to. But sometimes I need to sing the songs and participate in liturgy. And so I come here. And I've been doing this for about a year and a half, almost two years, pretty much the entire time I've been here in Chicago. Um, and so in... Brittany knowing this and us being friends, she's like, yeah, come and talk 
about the church without walls. And then so I said yes. And then a few weeks later, she sends me an email with just different topics that y'all were going to be navigating through. And I saw one was resistance. And I got really excited, really. So my master's is in social justice, AKA pushing back at things. So this morning, we are going to navigate <laughs> what it means to push back at some things. Y'all with me? Yeah. All right. So part of the reason why the church in the wild, the church without walls appeals to me, because I was always getting in trouble in church. I was that kid who asked too many questions. I ran in places I shouldn't have run. I, you know, pointed out inequalities and inequities that I saw, like, people didn't like me very much in, in space. And this has given birth to just different things in my spirit. And I understood that there's something about faith. There's something about justice that needs to come together and be lived. The cool thing is UVC is one of those spaces where it happens within the framework of the walls, but there are plenty of churches where what happens in this space, it's not the case for them. And so in those spaces, when I learned that inequality and equity were things that I wanted to navigate through, I realized that resistance and struggle and tension and pushing, these are things that were like deeply embedded in my spirit. Sometimes you just have to push back, you just have to resist. And the first question that I wanna ask us in this space is what is resistance? What does it mean to resist? So being a student, well, former student now, research is a big thing for me. Like I'm gonna like look up everything, I read everything, like I read random facts. And so when it came time to think about resistance, I went to the dictionary. I believe in dictionary skills. I was an educational advocate in the past and I would have my kids go to the dictionary. No, we're not gonna Wikipedia, we're going to like open up a book and see how we define this. So simple definitions of resistance include refusal to accept something new or different, an effort made to stop or to fight against someone or something, the ability to prevent something from having an effect. So simplicity is cool and all, but I felt that we needed to go deeper this morning. So, found a different definition. Resistance is the inerrant ability of an organism to resist harmful influences or survive exposure to toxicity that was formerly effective against it. I like that more. We're gonna switch gears and make this a little bit more personal. Resistance speaks to our inerrant, innate ability to survive, then push back at the toxic things that seek to harm, diminish, or oppress us. So I decided to use innate or inerrant because I felt they were key. They speak to the belief that we all possess the capacity to resist. Every single one of us has the ability, has the capacity to resist something. What that something is, I can't tell you, but we're gonna circle back to that question of like what you're gonna be resisting. So over these last few weeks, I know UVC has been prepping you by speaking about things like the history of race and racism, intersectionality, unpacking power and privilege, which you're gonna have the conversation on after church next week, amen? Yeah, yeah, show up to that. Um, and these are all things that go into resistance. 
Paul, in the passage that we just looked at, uses presence as a form of resistance, but we're going to circle back to that a little bit later on. Let's take a couple of seconds. So this is going to be a little bit participatory. I'm going to ask y'all some questions, and like you're going to respond. Actually, it's one question, and you're going to respond. Um, where, whether it be in scripture or outside of scripture, can you think of someone resisting something? It could be someone in real life. It could be a character in a book. It could be like a biblical figure. I don't care. Take 10 seconds and then just shout it out. Mahatma Gandhi. Moses. Jesus. Addiction. Rosa Parks. Well, we're going to get to Rosa Parks. Oh, she comes back up later on in the service. Martin Luther King. Got to touch on him, too. <laughs> so I knew Jesus was going to come up because we're in church and Jesus, yay, Jesus. Um, <laughs> but Jesus is like the obvious answer of resistance. Jesus' entire personhood was about resistance. The birth of Christ was resistance. The ministry of Christ was littered with, exist, like, with, with resistance. So when Jesus has this moment where he goes and sees this woman who's labeled an adulteress and bends down in that sand and starts writing, that's a form of resistance because he stood between the oppressed and the oppressor. When Jesus went and sat underneath that hot sun with a woman at the well and spoke to someone who, in her community, people weren't connecting with her. The reason that she was there at that time of day is because she had been outcasted in, in, in her context. But sitting there was an act of resistance. Water to wine, keep the party going, resistance. The community that we are called into, resistance. Jesus epitomizes resistance. But I knew that we knew that. So I started looking throughout the scriptures like to think, okay, who else could we talk about with resistance? And then like, what passage of scripture narrows in on who had engaged in and participated in resistance? And I landed on Hebrews 11. And in short, like this entire chapter of however many verses, Hebrews 11, like in summary, is through acts of faith, fight back. Hebrews 11 is like a who's who, like legit a who's who of resistance in the Bible. So Moses came up, Rahab came up, David came up. It literally says all of the prophets. So you think of any prophet in the scriptures, they, resistance is just what they do. The, the work of the prophetic is to push back. It's to speak truth to power. It's to, to speak to, you know, what is, what's happening and say, mm, something's not right here. A verse that I really valued within that chapter was verse 33, and it said, By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. So we're going to take that and, and put it in our context. Because when we resist, by faith, we will overcome, overthrow and overcome kingdoms and empires. We will act with justice because we're not ruling over nobody. And we are going to receive the things that God has promised us. 
So what does faith have to do with resistance? Well, one of my favorite verses in the scripture, and it's one that I've known since I was a little girl, is Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let's hold on to that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Resistance requires faith because faith is the belief that there is an alternative to the current circumstances. Faith says, this is not it. What I see in front of me is not the end. What I am am entrenched in in my circumstance is not the end of it. Faith says, there's something beyond this. There's another way. There's something that, that should be happening here that isn't, and a shift movement needs to take place. Resistance is a response to the vision that faith inspires. So we're going to go back to our history lessons. In a world entrenched, immersed, just darkened, by the evil that was slavery. There was resistance. There were people, for generations, they'd found themselves enslaved. The only thing that they knew was slavery because their mothers were enslaved, their grandparents were enslaved, their great-grandparents, you had generation after generation The only thing that they knew was slavery. The only thing that they knew was bondage. The only thing they knew was being, having their spirits consistently broken. And they said, I have a vision for something else, something I have not seen that has not been, that has not been for as far as we have collective memory. And we're going to be free. And there's going to be equity and equality that comes. And I don't know what that looks like, but we're going to be free. And these folks, the enslaved, this resistance in their spirits, this vision they had for something that, that hadn't even been, it, it, it wasn't in the, the recent memory, the, the physical memory. Like all you knew was people hanging from, from trees like strange fruit, being lynched, being beaten, children ripped apart from their parents, families torn apart. That is the only thing that you knew and they had vision for something that was not that. And that vision that was not that was something their white allies and accomplices latched onto and they leveraged their power and their privilege to see that vision come to pass. So, like them, in that moment, when you get to the point where you say, I can no longer act like this is okay because it's not, what do you do? Well, that depends on your call. Call and calling are a part of resistance. So, again, being a student, I look things up, and I'm like, so what's a good definition of call or calling? Went to the, def- the, the dictionary, the definitions were like super lofty and airy. They're all like, to be called is when God looks from on high and like grants the baby angels come into your space, and we weren't doing that. 
<laughs> that was not going to happen this morning. <laughs> so I thought about it, and like this is kind of like a hodgepodge that I put together. But Colin speaks to how you, you, each and every one of you, each and every one of us, comes to a situation and lends our personhood to it. That includes our personalities, our gifts, our talents, our visions, our relationships. It's how we arrive and see a space change because we've met that space. And it's the uniqueness of our identities, our personhoods, that make way for the opportunity for change, for this resistance to have some degree of impact. So in this moment, this one right now, I'm called here because of my love of resistance and justice. And for the vision that is like ingrained in like my entire being for a church that busts out of the walls, that, that where the spirit of God like flows and moves so heavily that we develop a consciousness that church is just not this. Church is what happens when we leave this space. And for those of us who may never enter into this space, that is still church. And it's because I have like a gift where I can kind of communicate this somewhat effectively. All of that lends itself to my being called in this moment to speak to you about resistance today. Now, let me be clear about something. We, you, are not called to do everything. I'm gonna run that back. <laughs> Y'all are not called to do everything. I'm gonna give you an example. It's one from yesterday. Professional bowling is not my call in life. <laughs> so last night I had gone and hung out with my dad and some friends and we went bowling and I am trash at bowling. I had bumpers on the lanes and I still had one of the lowest scores. I am terrible. It, my gifts do not show up in that space. My personality does not allow me the patience to be okay in that space. Not my call. And it's okay. You don't have to be present in all the spaces you're calling doesn't have to meet every situation because guess what? Someone else's calling will allow them to, to affect change. But you have to be conscious of this because you may try to insert yourself into a situation where you weren't called and you block somebody from doing what God told them to do. So I'm gonna use another example of, of where people were called to be in a space and to do something. So a few weeks ago, this incredible collective of people from around the country just happened to be ministers, just happened to be Methodists, happened to be a part of the LGBT community, decided we're gonna write this letter and they were gonna call their denomination, they were gonna call the church into a deeper love. There's about a hundred some odd of them who did it. Your pastor may or may not have been on that list. I'm not saying may or may not have, she was definitely on that list. And I like, I saw, I'm like, oh my God, Brittany, I'm so excited to see your name in there. Like I totally like fangirled and like loved on her after that <laughs> moment because I was so proud. But there were only a hundred some odd people who were on that list. And I say only a hundred some odd people because I recognize that for all the voices who said, hey, this is what we need to arrive at. This is the change that needs to come. There were other voices who may have identified in the same ways, but in that moment, we're not called to sign that letter. 
And maybe that was because of, you know, safety issues. There were issues with security. There were triggers. There were things preventing them. And that's okay. You need to be aware of your triggers, of safety, of loss. Those things have to be taken into account when you engage in, in resistance. And the reason why I say that, why I call us back to that, is to remind us, or maybe say for the first time, good resistance, and note that I said good, good resistance is strategic. And sometimes the most seemingly spontaneous moments had a plan behind it, including that letter. One arbitrary. But let's go back to our history lesson. I told you Rosa Parks would come up. Show of hands who knows who Rosa Parks is. All of us. Show of hands, who knows who Claudette Colvin is? Some of us. All right. So for those of you who don't know, Claudette Colvin was a 15-year-old girl who nine months before Rosa Parks sat on that bus in Montgomery, Claudette Colvin sat on that same like, bus route in Montgomery. A child, a 15-year-old girl, is the spark of the movement. So what happens is we go back in time in the annals of history, Ms. Rosa Parks fit an image. It was strategic placing her there in that moment because she was an adult, she was 42 years old. She was a professional, so she looked, she looked right. She was a part of the NAACP, so she had connections. She wasn't a 15-year-old girl who had gotten pregnant, who had made a plan to, like, to resist. And the movement organizers, civil rights organizers, civil rights leaders are like, all right, Rosa, we're going to use you as the face of this part of the movement. Not the girl who inspired us nine months before. Colette Coven, when she was asked about this, she's been interviewed over the years by people who know about the real history behind the, the, the bus boycotts. And she said, I knew why they chose Rosa. They thought I would be too militant for them. They wanted someone mild and genteel like Rosa. And the reason why I wanted to call that into this space, it wasn't even just that civil rights movement leaders had a plan. Claudette had a plan. Being 15 years old, she, it wasn't she just sat down on a bus one day. Like, and that's sometimes the story we tell with Rosa Parks, but that's just not real history. Claudette and a, and a group of local high school students in Montgomery planned out what it would look like for them to sit in those front seats on that bus and not move. Guess what? The other ones got shook. They got scared. They got up. They left. Claudette didn't. She was arrested. They filed lawsuits. It's because of her and people like her, these unsung heroes that we're in this moment that we are right now, because they, children, the young ones, the ones who were willing to resist in, in ways that had not yet been resisted before, sparked change and made people get off of their butts and do something. So that was caught up. What are you called to resist? How are you called to resist? So I can't answer the what for you, but I can suggest a framework for the how. So we've already defined effective or good resistance as being strategic. So it, it, it makes sense to note that this is intentional. 
It's not arbitrary. There's intention behind it. Each and every one of these things bears, I cannot stress this enough, there is intention, there is exploration, there is sitting, there is discernment. And my heart for each and every person in this room who hears this, what have you, is that you resist effectively. And there are different types of resistance. And I want to note that there are types and not degrees because no one form is greater than another. They're just different and utilized for different things in different seasons. So the first one is abstaining. Abstaining speaks to not engaging, not participating in the, the toxicity and violence that's in a space. And so another history example is the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins. How many of y'all know about that? Okay, most of us. And so in those sit-ins, you know, this is at the beginning of the civil rights movement, you had young people who sat at these lunch counters that were like, you know, previously white, or in that moment, they were whites only. And they were, they had food dumped all over them. They were, had people spit in their face, calling them everything but a child of God. It was a violent, a physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally violent space for them. And they sat still. Now, remember what I said about good resistance being intentional and strategic? Oh, this was not happenstance. For months, they had simulations and they had, um, practice going through this so they would not react. And you know why they didn't react? Because abstaining abstinence in that context allows for a mirror to be held up at your oppressor. And the ugliness and the violence can clearly be seen by all. And it sets an example. It shows them this is the ugliness that's coming up in this space. The next type of resistance is committing. It's active engagement in a practice. And so groups like Surge, showing up for racial justice, and Black Lives Matter commit to something. They commit to action, whether that action means protest, whether it means you know, letter writing, whether it means you know, social media you know, and digital activism. It's committing to doing something. It's a praxis. It's living. It's moving. It's active. It's, it's, it's movement. But it's also having the commitments where we sit and talk to racist Uncle Bill and tell him that in our presence, he can't diminish the personhood of someone else. It's not just the complex, it's the simple. It's just the conversations that we have. I told you we circle back to Paul. We're getting to him now. Resistance also includes lending your presence. So Paul, in the, in the scripture that we looked at coming into this space where we talked about resistance, acknowledged that he just wanted to leave the world and be present with Jesus. But he knew that there was something valuable. There was some merit to him being present with that church. And so he, he was. He said, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to remain present for you as long as I'm, I'm called to be present. I'm not going to just duck out and just peace out in ways that sometimes churches do. Like, I mean, real talk. You have churches who, how's it go? Are too heavenly bound to be any earthly good. They are so concerned with the holy 
and what is righteous and what is good. That they are not serving people. That they're not out in the streets. Quite frankly, if you come into the house wearing the wrong thing, looking some sort of way, you're not good enough. Hell, I wouldn't be allowed in most churches the way that I'm dressed. Right now, I am barefoot, because I felt to be. I am wearing a shirt that says, I scare the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. But those heavenly places, I mean, my, my, so there was this uh, meme going around like this week, speaking about like the length of your skirt and your holiness. I think this officially qualifies me to be worldly with a conscience. <laughs> eh, I'll be that. But the, re <laughs> the reason why I note that is that we, gotta, we have to be present with people. We have to connect. We have to, to be open. Be open to the move of the spirit in our houses and outside of there. And so I have this friend who's pretty awesome. I love her to pieces. And she's present for people in ways that, I mean, she chose not to. She, could, she doesn't have to be. So she's committed to activism. She's committed to justice. And she works a full-time job. She's in school. And she is super, super, super involved in, like, justice movements. And one of the things that she does is participates in protests, like many activists do. And there are some protests that she goes to as a white woman because she understands that the, her presence, lending her whiteness to that space, results in reduction of arrest and also the type of violence that comes behind the arrest. She could go home and watch Netflix. That's what good millennials do. We watch lots of Netflix. We go online for all the things, but instead she is present with those young people most, who are mostly young black men because she understands that her presence changes the space, it changes the atmosphere. How does your presence change an atmosphere where you find yourself? And the last type of, of resistance that I'll, I'll note is extending your personhood. And so for this, I'll use myself as an example. So by the time we hear you know, this version or whatever version of this sermon's used, I will have publicly come out. I've been having conversations over these last months preparing the people in my world for what that reality looks like. And the reason why I'm coming out as a black queer woman is because there is somebody who, as long as they can remember, has loved Jesus and they have loved the church, even if they didn't always feel like they belonged. But they also had a discovery at some point in life that they were queer and were told that that is not good, that that cannot be called into these church spaces. And there may be confusion and heartache and tension and depression and anxiety. And I want that young, queer, black kid, white kid, Beijing kid, whoever. Maybe it's a grown person, I don't know. But I want them to see me, 
standing in the fullness of who I am, unashamed of who God made me be. I want them to see a woman who is committed to justice and to Jesus and to seeing the church grow and not deny in any part of my personhood because I am good and they are good and we are good and God loves us and uses us and we are conduits of grace and mercy and love and will change this world because of who God made us to be in every facet of our personhood. And so out of that, I'm very publicly coming out because I want somebody to see me and understand that God is love and that God extends their love to you. And there's no reason to ever cover up any part of who you are unless you choose to because of, again, that calling, those, that safety that you need. If that's it, fine. But it's not because of the theological constraints. It's not because you can't be a Christian. It's not because you can't speak or be or, or, or whatever. No. I want to extend my personhood because I feel equipped. I feel called. I feel that I can be that resistance. I can hold that line so somebody sees and know that they'll be okay. So I said a lot about resistance. We said that it relies on vision on faith, on calling. And we have to sort out what we need to resist and how. So Habakkuk 2.2 sorts out what our next step is. And then the prophet, because we know all prophets are resistant by nature, but the prophet crying out and saying to God, where are you? Why is justice the, the loser? Why is there violence? Why is there lawlessness? Why is there crime? Why is there cruelty? Why is it everywhere? Why is there oppression that we can't seem to get out from underneath? Does it sound familiar to y'all? Habakkuk exchanges like in this back and forth with God and God responds with a reminder to resist. And the verse said, Yahweh answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he who runs may read it. You want to know where to start? You want to know how to begin resisting? Capture that alternative vision. Capture that vision for what could be. Write it, dance it, sing it, record it in some capacity so that you can come back to it so that others can draw inspiration from it, so that when necessary, whoever, wherever, whenever it needs to be drawn off of, when it needs to be seen, when it needs to be held, when it needs to be, be grasped, it can be. Because we need to see a vision for something that transcends the current circumstances and find reasons to resist.